I'd like to take the opportunity as well to wish all of our fathers a very happy Father's Day. As Clark mentioned, what a, what a great joy and what a great privilege and what a high calling it is to be a father, to be one who is called to lead your home, to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition and to teach them the fear of the Lord. What a high calling, but the Lord gives a great grace to those who strive to honor him in that. So I hope you have a good Father's Day. I hope you have some time today to reflect on what the Lord has called you to as a father, as one who is to point those entrusted to your care to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, please turn with me now to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 and the paragraph that we'll begin starting at verse 13 actually extends into verse 22 all the way to the end of the chapter, but it has a clean break kind of around verse 17. So today we'll look at 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17, and we're looking this at this under the title, Always Ready. Always Ready. And we're going to borrow, um, many of you are familiar with verse 15, where Peter charges his readers to always be ready, to be always ready to defend their hope. In Christ, and so that's kind of a, a key and main thrust to this passage. And as we look at a verse um, in in its whole context, one that we know well, in First Peter three fifteen, one of the great duties and great joys we have is to see a verse that many of us may have committed to memory. We get to see it in its full context, and there's a lot of context here to help drive home the great truth of our need to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and defend the hope that we have in him. So let's look to our text. I want to read our text, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time of studying his word today. If you are willing and able, please stand with me as we give honor and attention to the reading of Holy Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. The word of God says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet, with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. May the Lord bless the reading of his words. You may be seated. Now let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we acknowledge that you are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. To you belongs all praise and honor and glory forever and ever. Lord, you are high and majestic. 
you are exalted above all. Lord, what is man that you should look upon him, the son of man that you should care for him? You know our frame. You know that we are but dust. And yet you look upon us with compassion and with love, with mercy and with eternal grace. Or what kindness you've shown us in Christ. What kindness you have shown us in sending your only begotten son to die on a cross so that he might bear the condemnation of our sin so that we could be free from its power and its penalty and its presence. Lord, as we consider such a great grace, it's hard to it's not hard to understand why you call us to sanctify Christ as the Lord and the master of our hearts. And as we look to your word today for instruction on exactly how to do that, I pray that you would give us humble hearts, that you would purify our hearts and our minds and prepare us to receive the word that you have before us. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would move among us in a powerful and a mighty way, for we are but mere men and women. We are mortals. We are unable to fully grasp and understand the depth of your scripture and instruction. But Lord, by your Spirit, I pray that you would write your word upon our hearts, that you would bring us to points of repentance for our sin, and that you would grow us and conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. Would you cause us to put off sin, to cut off the arm of the flesh, and to walk in a way that honors and glorifies you in a way that honors and glorifies the sacrifice of Christ when he paid for our sins. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are ready and eager to receive and respond to your truth. Pray that you would show us Christ. Pray that you would show us our failures. But then again, Lord, show us Christ. May he receive the honor and the glory that is due his name. We ask this in his name. Amen. So Peter's charge to us in the text before us today is that we must always be ready. We must be ready to proclaim Christ. We must be ready to endure suffering, to live righteously, and to shame evil living. We must always be ready to make a defense of your great and enduring hope in Christ. And as we just sang, what a great, great hope it is. To be ready, to, to be always ready to defend and proclaim this hope, you must be zealous for what is good, the text teaches us. You must have a deep and abiding hope in Christ. And you must be able and willing to righteously endure suffering. 
The scriptures are full of commands and encouragement for believers to endure suffering and to always be ready. Scripture are full of commands for us to always be ready. Consider Matthew 24, verse 44. Jesus said, For this reason you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. In Titus chapter 3, Paul is instructing Titus as to what the elders are to teach in the church. Titus 3, verse 1, he said, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, and to be obedient and to be ready for every good deed. In our very epistle that we're studying, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Have minds that are ready to act. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We must always be ready. We must always be ready to defend our hope in Christ. The Christian life is one of constant preparedness for battle. For as Peter will later write in chapter 5 of this epistle, Satan prowls around, around this world like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Satan wants to ruin the faith of the saints of Christ. Satan will use instruments of this world, things like temptation and persecution and fear and intimidation, and he uses those things to shipwreck and to ruin faith. You must be ready. As we just read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we must always be on guard. We must be ready in season and out of season to stand upon the truth. We must be sober-minded. We must endure hardship. We must do the hard work of evangelism and fulfill the ministries that the Lord has entrusted to us. Each one of us is entrusted by God with a specific ministry to carry out under the authority of a local church to his glory while he gives us breath. You must be ready. So with this in mind, Peter instructs us as to how we might be ready. The the main point of this is this charge to be ready to always be ready, but he doesn't just say be ready. He instructs. He gives us specific steps, specific things that we must do to be ready to defend our faith and to sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts. So let's look to the text, verses 13 and 14. We see that we must be zealous for doing good. You must be zealous for doing good. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, as we work through this text, in every verse that you'll see, Peter gives this this idea that there will be suffering. There will be hardship. You will suffer harm, but then he tells you either what you should do to respond to that suffering or what you should be doing to bring about that suffering. 
It's what he does with this first question. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? You prove zealous for what is good and you will suffer for it. Scripture is clear. Scripture gives us many examples of those saints who have gone before us who suffered for doing what is right. Think back to the Old Testament. There could be many, many illustrations of this, but think about Joseph with Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. Joseph did the right thing, and what happened? He suffered greatly. Think about Stephen in the book of Acts proclaiming the gospel and what did he receive he was stoned to death think about one of those very men that was giving hearty approval to the stoning of Stephen the apostle Paul before his conversion once Paul was converted and came alive in Christ was made alive in Christ he devoted his life to the ministry of the gospel and what did he receive but hardship and suffering but also, as he said, the crown of life. Now, those are all examples, but think about the chief example. Jesus Christ himself, God in human flesh, perfect, holy, righteous, without sin. And what happened to him? He went to a cross. He was put to death with a brutal type of death and suffering. He bore our sins in his body so that we could be made alive. Scripture is clear. Scripture is full of examples of those who suffer harm while being zealous for what is good. So who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Quite frankly, there are many. There are many who will harm you when you stand upon the truth. The world has its own standard for quote-unquote goodness and morality and what is good and right, and it does not align with God's standard. It does not align and submit itself to God's truth, and the world will hate you if you reject their standard for truth and goodness and morality. Now, there is a way that the world will accept your good deeds, the world will accept your good deeds even as one who calls yourself a Christian if those good deeds are not accompanied with a proclamation of the gospel, with a declaring of truth, with a calling sinners to repentance. And to be clear, there, there might be some times, I would argue probably few times, where maybe you do general good to the world around you without proclaiming the gospel or calling sinners to repentance. Again, I want to stress that those times are likely few, but it could happen. We, we are to be generous and to be kind and, and to love, and there are times when you may not proclaim the truth, and so the world will receive those acts of kindness most assuredly. However, church, we must be on guard. We must be on guard that we don't fear the intimidation and the hatred and the reviling and the slandering of the world and go do all these good things for those in the world and never preach Christ to those who are on the pathway to hell. You know that you won't face suffering if you don't stand upon the truth. So do good, prove yourself to be zealous for what is good, and then preach and proclaim the truth. What good is it if you send a lost person on their way warmed and filled 
but warmed and filled on the pathway to hell. What good is it? What have you done, done to glorify the Lord or to help that person? Arguably, we could say that really what you've done is harm them rather than helping them because you have not given them Christ. There are many in our day who need handouts. There are many even more who will accept handouts, that, that kind of goodness that we can show to the world. But there are few. There are few who will accept proclamation of the truth they want to take and take and take and receive and receive and receive but the second you bring up bring up the truth the second you confront sin the second you call for repentance you're rejected you're hated you're scorned so who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good there are many who will. So let's think then about what does it mean? What does it look like to prove zealous for what is good uh, on a normal basis in the Christian life? This is something that we are to do and to live every single day. So what does it look like? Well, let's begin with the terms. Firstly, Peter says to prove this about yourself. That indicates that there's action that accompanies your proclamation. You don't just say that you are a follower of Christ, but your deeds and your actions prove and display that you're a follower of Christ. He says that you are to prove to be zealous for these things, to be zealous, to earnestly desire, to earnestly seek after. Scripture, in a similar way, says that the Lord is zealous or jealous for his own Glory, that is what zeal and jealousy in the positive sense looks like. It's a zeal for God's glory. It's an earnest passion for something. And so then what does it look like to prove zealous for what is good? If you will, turn back with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I want to read a few verses there, and it kind of helps to, to paint a picture of some of the common ways, some of the everyday ways that we can prove zealous for what is good. That's the key term I want to find in this, in this passage we'll read, is the idea of something being good. Look at verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14 and following. Paul writes there, We urge you, brethren... Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good. Seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So, so what goodness do we see there? It's that idea from verse 14 of admonishing the unruly and encouraging the faint-hearted and helping the weak and being patient with them all, not repaying evil for evil. If you want to seek after that which is good, do those things. Hold others accountable for the way that they live. Do all things, Paul says, in patience. Now let's keep reading in that text. Verse 16, rejoice always, Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Those things which are good are the things that come before it in this, in this list that Paul gives you. So how do you prove yourself zealous for that which is good? Rejoice always. Have a heart that is full of the joy of the Lord. In all circumstances, Paul doesn't say rejoice sometimes or most of the time or when things are going well. He says rejoice always and you rejoice always because we have Christ, the great hope in all life and in all death. Paul says pray without ceasing. You want to prove zealous for what is good? Pray. Get on your knees before the holy God of the universe and commune with the creator and sustainer of all things. Commune with him in prayer. Paul says in everything, give thanks. Have a thankful heart because you trust and you know that the Lord works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In everything, give thanks. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do you know how you quench the spirit? You quench the spirit by walking in sin. So to prove yourself zealous for that which is good means you walk by the spirit and you deny the desires of the flesh. He says, do not despise prophetic utterances. Submit yourself to the truth and authority of God's word. He says, abstain from every form of evil. To prove zealous for what is good means that you live a holy and set-apart life. You're not given to the deeds and the desires of the flesh. Prove yourself to be zealous for that which is good. Will the world receive that goodness? Surely they won't. You will be hated, you will be maligned, you will be slandered, and you will be persecuted. But you prove yourself zealous for that which is good. And ask yourself as you sit here today, does my life prove that I'm zealous for that which is good? Or does my life prove that I'm zealous for the appetites and the desires of my flesh? Peter continues on at the beginning of verse 14. It says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So Peter anticipates that there will be hardship. There will be suffering for those who walk in righteousness. And he offers this encouragement. He says, even when you do, the Lord's blessing is upon you. When you suffer for righteousness, don't think that you are being punished, but know that the Lord's hand is upon you to conform you to the image of Christ and to strip away the desires of the world and the flesh. Again, at the end of this epistle in chapter 5, Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So how are you blessed when you suffer for the sake of righteousness? Because the Lord is at work in you. 
You're blessed when you suffer because the Lord is sanctifying and perfecting you. He is preparing you for heaven. Do you understand that? When you suffer, the Lord is stripping away the cares and concerns and the desires of this world so that you may be more fitted and more prepared for the glory of righteousness and holiness and perfection in heaven. Just to be clear, this applies to all hardship and to all suffering. This is not just for those who are being persecuted for the faith, but if you are walking through trial and tribulation, understand that the Lord is stripping away from you the cares of the world and preparing you for and preparing for you that eternal weight of glory. So stand firm, dear saint. Stand firm and remain. Prove to be zealous for that which is good and pleasing to the Lord, because he is working in you his grace for your good and for his glory. So again, ask the question again from the text, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And the answer is that you will be harmed. You will suffer. You will be persecuted. But when you're zealous for what is good, when you walk uprightly before the Lord, you are blessed because he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is your strength. He is your portion. He is that which fills your cup and causes it to overflow. He is your refuge. He is your shelter. And the nearness of God that you know through suffering is for your good so you prove yourself zealous for what is good and then the nearness that God brings to you and gives to you of his presence is for your eternal good so we must be zealous for what is good and then we must fix our hope upon Christ we must fix our hope on Christ let's continue on in verse 14 Peter writes and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. So I want to start here. This, uh, the end of verse 14 is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. I want to read a few verses there if, if you want to follow along or you can listen as I read them. Isaiah 8 is a fascinating um, fascinating section of Isaiah's prophecy. There, um, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, is facing an attack from the Assyrian army. He and the kings of Israel and Syria are, are talking. Those other kings want to make a pact with him to fight against Assyria together. And King Ahaz of Judah decides, well, I'm just going to join forces with the Assyrians. They're the big and mean army, so I'm just going to join forces with them. And Isaiah has instruction from the Lord for King Ahaz. Look at verses 11 and the following of Isaiah chapter 8. It says, For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power, instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. 
and you are not to fear what they fear or to be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. He is your fear. He is your dread. You regard him as holy, and then he becomes a sanctuary, a refuge, a shelter to you. So that's what Peter is saying. Do not fear the intimidation of evil. Let the Lord be your sanctuary. That's really what he gets at in verse 15, is that you set apart and sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart. Let's think about Isaiah 8 a little bit more before we move on. There we see that to not fear the intimidation of the world begins with one thing. Begins with regarding the Lord as holy. Regarding the Lord as holy. The Lord describes himself as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. He says, do not fear men, but fear God. Dread standing against God and falling under his condemnation. Jesus would say it this way. Do not fear those who can kill only the body, but fear the one who is able to kill both body and soul in hell. Hoping in Christ begins with fearing the Lord. Hear that again. Hoping in Christ begins with fearing God. And seeing him as holy. So if you want to hope in Christ, don't start with your sin. Don't start with the cross. We need to get there. But if you want to hope in Christ, understand that God is holy. And he is the Lord of hosts. And he promises to be a sanctuary, a shelter, and a refuge to those who are his. So how do we do this practically speaking? You know, that's kind of high-minded theology. How do we do this practically speaking? Well, Peter tells us in verse 15. He begins by saying, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. To sanctify is the Greek term hagiazo. It means to hallow something. To treat it as that which is holy or consecrated, or set apart. So apply those definitions in context. Treat Christ as holy and consecrated and set apart as the Lord of your heart. So that's where it drives from, from our external view of God to our heart view of God. Sanctify him as Lord of your heart. Matthew Henry says that we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts when we sincerely and fervently adore him. You sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts when you sincerely and fervently adore him. Henry continues, we do that when our thoughts of him are full of awe and reverence. Do you consider Christ with awe and reverence? He says we do this when we rely on his power. Do you walk in the strength that your own flesh supplies, or do you walk in the power of Christ? 
The power that rose Jesus from the grave is in you through the Spirit of God at work in you. Henry continues, we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts when we trust his faithfulness. Do you understand that the Lord is faithful? That his mercies are new every morning? When you sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart, you walk in that truth. It's not just some abstract idea to you, but you wake up every morning and realize, I need the Lord's mercy to get through today. And you get to the end of the day and you realize the Lord's mercy for today is running out. I need to go to sleep because his mercies are new tomorrow. You sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts when you do that. Henry continues, we, we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts when we submit to his wisdom, when you submit to his word. It says, when we imitate his holiness. You say, how do I imitate the holiness of God? You obey scripture. You obey scripture and ask him to purify your sinful, vile, wicked heart. You're called to be holy as the Lord is holy. So you sanctify Christ as Lord when you pursue that holiness. Henry then concludes that we do this when we give him the glory that is due his most illustrious perfections. Consider the glory and the perfection of the Lord and give him glory. Give him honor. Give him praise. Stop and consider the glorious works of his hands and praise his name. Ascribe glory and honor and praise because the Lord causes all things. The Lord created all and all of this creation points to his illustrious glory. So we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts And we must always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. You're always ready to make a defense of the hope that is in you. That's where we get into the word where we find the idea of apologetics. Defense is the Greek term apologia. It, It means to defend. It means to give a verbal, clear proclamation in defense of something. You don't give a defense of your faith when you say, I'll just live out my faith and let the way I live speak for itself. Yes, you do live out your faith. But to give a defense means to speak. So you proclaim your hope and then your life comes alongside of that proclamation and shows that your hope is in Christ and it always and ever remains. Sanctify Christ as Lord and then defend your hope in him. Again, we're defending our hope. It's a hope that endures, a hope that remains, a hope that does not fade away, that a hope that gives you strength and builds you up in times of trial and sorrow and difficulty. That is the hope that you defend. There's an object of that hope, right? We don't just proclaim that we have a hope, but we say we have a hope and his name is Jesus. His name is the Christ. 
He is the Messiah. Let's be very clear here. You do not defend your opinion of Jesus. You do not proclaim Christ by giving your testimony of what he's done in your life. Praise the Lord for that testimony of his grace. But when we defend our hope and that hope being in Christ, we preach who Jesus is. We preach who he is from the pages of Scripture. The Son of God taking on human flesh, coming in the form of a bondservant, and we preach about his work, that he went to the cross to bear the sins of many. He appeased the wrath of God. He died on that cross. He went to the grave. He rose again. He ascended to glory, and he sits at the right hand of God Most High in heaven. That is what you proclaim. That is what you defend. So are you always ready to make that defense? I think if we're all honest, the answer would be no. We get timid. We get shy. We get even almost embarrassed because we're worried about the rejection of the world. But Scripture says always be ready. Proclaim Christ boldly. Now, we say we must proclaim Christ boldly, but let's read the rest of the verse. We give an account for the hope that is in you, yet you do it with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence. Paul would probably say it this way, you speak the truth in love. We proclaim Christ with a gentle and humble heart. How do you think you will win souls to Christ if you go proclaim him from a source of pride and with arrogance in your voice? No, you come with lowliness of mind, with gentleness, with meekness. When you remember meekness, this idea of gentleness is power that is under control, power that is restrained. So we have this powerful message that we proclaim, and we proclaim it with boldness, We proclaim it with passion, but we proclaim it with a kind and gentle spirit. Let me tell you why you proclaim it with a kind and gentle spirit, because you also must do it with reverence, with gentleness and reverence. Look back, if you want, to 1 Peter 1, verse 17. We get an idea why reverence comes into play here. Peter wrote there, chapter 1, verse 17, If you address his father... The one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth. Conduct yourselves in fear. Conduct yourselves with reverence because you serve the God who impartially judges according to each one's deeds. You say, so what does that have to do with proclaiming Christ? Because you understand that God is king of all and he will judge that soul across from you according to their deeds just as he will judge you according to yours. Praise God, we have hope in Christ that we are forgiven and there's no condemnation. But when you proclaim Christ, you do it with a sense of fear because you know that person across from you is on the pathway to hell because God judges impartially. He will give no reprieve to his wrath for those who die apart from Christ. So you defend and proclaim your hope with gentleness and reverence because it's not anything that you've done and eternity is at stake. 
Thank the Lord for the promise that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. We have a defender. We have one who proclaims his own blood, his own righteousness on our account. If you sin, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we must be zealous for doing good. We must fix our hope upon Christ. If you're to be ready to suffer for Christ, to proclaim him, you must do good. You must have your hope fixed upon him, and then you must righteously endure suffering. You must righteously endure suffering. Verses 16 and 17, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You should suffer for doing right. You should keep a good and a clear conscience in doing what is right even when you suffer, even when you are reviled, even when you are hated, even when you are slandered. I think the King James has a good translation of, of that term slander in this context, it translates it as speak evil of you. So when the world speaks evil of you, you keep a good conscience because you are doing what is right. You're doing what is right, and you must live in such a way as to silence and to shame those who come up against the truth and against righteousness. Now, I want to pick on that for just a moment. Because we live in a day of feel-goodism. We live in a day of tone police. We live in a day where if you tell somebody, I'm going to live in such a way as to bring shame to the world, they're kind of going to back away from you. But what does Scripture say? Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Live so righteously, live a life that is so set apart unto the Lord and so holy and so blameless that if somebody hates you, if somebody slanders you, if somebody speaks evil against you, they are put to open shame because they're made to look like fools. Live in such a way that displays the weighty holiness of God, and that will shame evildoers. How do you do that? You keep your behavior excellent. You keep your conscience clear. Now, we know that the conscience is not the end all. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 that I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. We must walk in practical evident, observable righteousness with God and with his people. That is how you keep a clear conscience, by walking in righteousness. Genuine, true, and evident righteousness. You put off sin. You are above reproach. You are above the fray. You seek that which is good. 
Peter continues, it's better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Peter would say it this way in the previous chapter, verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently and endure it, this finds favor with God. Endure suffering with patience and you will, according to the authority of Scripture, find favor with God. Very well could be that the Lord has in your future, in my future, in our future collectively, to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Because a slave is not greater than his master. And Christ suffered the ultimate price. Christ suffered greatly. Even before the cross, Christ was hated because he was righteous. So be prepared to suffer. We must always be ready. We must be zealous for what is good. We must zealously pursue holiness and righteousness. We must fix our hope upon Christ. We must reverentially set him apart as the Lord of our hearts, as our master, as our king. Serve him with reverence and with joy and with all of your strength. We must be ready to endure that suffering. That's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we must always be ready. We're always ready when we walk in righteousness. We're always ready when we proclaim Christ, endure suffering, and shame evil living. That's what it looks like for life to be ready to endure hardship. And all that finds its ultimate root in this idea that we have sanctified Christ as Lord of our hearts. So really we can sum up our time with one question. Have you sanctified Christ as the Lord of your heart? Do you prove to be zealous for that which is good? Do you prove that Christ is your Lord or that you desire to please your flesh? Do you live in such a way that Christ receives honor and glory and praise or in such a way that he endures greater punishment that he endured more wrath at the cross because you continue to sin. Live in such a way to show that Christ is your Lord and your Master. For again, he is worthy. He's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Be ready to face whatever may come, and you do that by sanctifying Christ as Lord of your heart. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we pray that your word would find a place in our hearts. That you would help us indeed to sanctify Christ as the Lord of our hearts. To prove ourselves to be zealous for that which is good. Lord, would you help us to live and to walk in ways that are pleasing and glorifying to you. 
Would you help us, Lord, to put off sin and to put on Christ? Would you help us to live lives that are set apart and holy, that give you all honor and glory? Lord, write your word upon our hearts, we ask for your praise and your glory forever and ever in your church. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and um, we will respond to God's word and close this morning by singing together all people that on earth do dwell. So let's sing together. <laughs>